I'm ready to cut cancer out of Harlem. I'm ready to do it. I'm skilled. I, I know how to cut cancer out. I want to cut it out of Harlem. I can't do that. I can't cut it out. It won't yield. It won't yield to a surgeon's knife. Cancer wouldn't yield. And, and, and so now I'm frustrated. I said, oh, I got all this skill. I can, I can cut this thing out. But then I get to the reality, I can't cut it out. Why? Because the people were coming in too late with cancer for me to be able to cut it out. I can't cut it out. You're listening to the Cancer History Project, a podcast of oral histories and interviews with the people who have shaped oncology as we know it. Created to mark the 50th anniversary of the National Cancer Act of 1971, the Cancer History Project is a growing collaborative historical resource by cancer centers and other oncology organizations. The Cancer History Project is operated by The Cancer Letter, the longest running oncology news publication established in 1973. This is an ongoing project and would not be possible without the input and materials provided by our editorial board, our contributors, and the support of our sponsors, including Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, City of Hope, SWOG Cancer Research Network, and the Hope Foundation for Cancer Research, Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, Sarah Cannon Research Institute, UPMC Hillman Cancer Center, and many others. View a full list of our sponsors at cancerhistoryproject.com sponsors. If your institution would like to participate in the Cancer History Project, email us at admin at cancerhistoryproject.com. I'm Alex Carolyn, Editorial Associate with the Cancer History Project. In today's episode, Dr. Robert Wynn, Director of VCU Massey Cancer Center, and Dr. John Stewart, Founding Director of LSU Health, LCMC Health Cancer Center, speak with Dr. Harold Freeman, the father of patient navigation. Freeman is a graduate of Howard University Medical School and spent his residency in cancer surgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. From there, he became a cancer surgeon at Harlem Hospital, where he aimed to cut cancer out of Harlem. Freeman's patients, Harlem residents who were poor and Black, often sought treatment too late. Freeman was determined to change this. As president of the American Cancer Society, Freeman published a study, Cancer in the Socioeconomically Disadvantaged, exploring for the first time how poverty contributes to untreated cancers. Freeman is credited for inventing the field of patient navigation, which aims to help people manage their treatment plan, provide support, and address barriers to access. This recording is part of a series of interviews conducted by Robert Wynn, guest editor of the Cancer History Project during Black History Month. You can read the transcript of this recording at the link in the description of this episode. I was going to start with just opening up a couple questions. Um, the first question that I had was, as I was looking, I was trying to figure out what got you interested in surgery? Yeah. Okay. Well, when I was in medical school at Howard University, uh, I finished medical school in 1958, a long time ago. So I was first interested in psychiatry, actually. <laughs> and uh, the theory of psychiatry really fascinated me in my freshman year of medical school. But I, I became discouraged 
a year or so later when we went to the clinical part at, at St. Elizabeth's where they had chronic patients. And I got discouraged because it didn't seem like there were good medical answers to serious psychological problems that, that I saw. <clears throat> and, um, I, but I kept it, my interest in psychiatry. In fact, I finished, I got the prize in psychiatry at the end of medical school, and all these <laughs> psychiatry books. But in the meantime, I, I shifted my thinking because when I rotated to surgery, I, I liked the idea that you could make a diagnosis and operate and, and have a finding, like take out an appendix and the patient would be okay. I, I like that idea. I, I, I like the idea of being able to, to see what I was doing, to see the result of it. And, and that, that philosophy has kind of stayed with me uh, across other areas of my life. I, I like to, to do things and see results, if that's possible. I'm, I'm willing to put in a lot of time to get to an answer, but I like to, 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 to see that I have an effect, to, to understand the problem and then see that I have an effect. So that's the kind of the answer to that. So I became a, a surgeon. And um, why did I go into cancer surgery? It is a question you might ask. And, and I think I'm not so sure, you, know, you can't really understand why you do things, but I do know that my father died of cancer, testicular cancer, when I was 13 years old. And it disturbed my life a great deal. And I was all, always, I didn't like cancer. From, from childhood, I didn't like it. And I wanted to do something about it. Um, and then in another part of that was I trained in general surgery at, at Howard University under Burke Syfax, who was, you may, you may know that name, and LaSalle Defoe, who was really uh, inspiring to me um, at that time. Um, and and uh, you know, I, I found that um, I wanted to see if I could carry my skill level further like LaSalle had done and Jack White before him, both at Howard University. And, and, and I got the opportunity to go to Memorial Stone Kettering uh, where after general surgery, I, I did residency for three more years to, to learn cancer surgery, radical cancer surgery, um, including all the way to pelvic acceleration and hemipelvectomy. Uh, and, uh, big operations uh, I learned. Uh, and so when I came to Harlem, uh, uh, the question might be, well, where'd you go after memorial training, which was four years plus seven years now, I'm ready to go out and work. And the question is, where should I go? And because of my particular background in, in Washington, D.C., I think I had an effect. Uh, the, the idea that uh, I'd had a lifetime by then that reflected what was happening to, to people who were not treated fairly. Um, as I lived that, uh, I lived that very, very much in Washington, D.C. And, and, and so the social um, environment in which I grew up in 
which was really separation of races, including all the way through Dunbar High School, where the high schools were separated in Washington when I finished. Uh, separated, separated. Now, and that's another story. That's another very interesting story. But we're getting away from cancer. But, but you know, it was an excellent school, Dunbar. And, and, and why? Somewhat why? Because it was segregated. Now, let me say this. Now, this, is, this is a shocking story, <laughs> but it's a true story. So now, if you're a young person in Washington, D.C., as I was, and, and you wanted to go to college, you would choose Dunbar because everyone knew that if you want to go to college, you go to Dunbar High School to get prepared. So Dunbar attracted young Black people with aspiration from the whole city. And, and, and so it gathered by, by that process, uh, people who had high aspirations, I went there at the same time. And that was, that was related to prejudice. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't go to the white schools. And I wanted to go to the best black school. And, and that school had started in 1870, just after the Civil War, as the first black high school in America, by the way. That's another story. There are many, many stories within the story. So, so now I go to Dunbar now. The teachers at Dunbar were, were people, some of whom were PhD people from Princeton and Harvard. You know, now this time I went to high school between 47 and 50, finished in 50. The, the teachers were high level teachers who had, who had extraordinary education, you know, including the father of black history, by the way. I'm trying to think of his name. He taught there. So, so now you have you, through two different sets of prejudice, having the students going to, going to that high school because of prejudice and separation, um, and the best teachers that you could find at the same school because they, could, they should have had jobs anywhere else that they could, but they weren't allowed to have the best students and the best teachers in the same building at the same time. And it created an extraordinary high school. So, still believed to be one of the best academic high schools in the history of America. Uh, from, from, from that school, high level people, like Senator Brooke from Massachusetts came out of that school. Um, you know, um, there, there are many famous scholars. Um, Charles Drew came out of that school. Charles Drew came out of that school, and I can name many others. So, so I'm, I'm getting off point, but it's an important part of the story. With why you do certain things. So I went into I went into to to, to surgery because I wanted to see results. Um, I went to Memorial. I wanted to get better technically than I had just with general surgery. Then, then the next thing, why did I go to Holland? <clears throat> well, I went to Harlem because of that particular background. I felt if I have all this skill that I've built up over all these years, I want to apply it to help my people. That's what I, that's what I decided then, at that time. And that was 1968 when I went from Memorial Sloan Kettering to the community of Harlem 
to work as a surgeon. And that's the background. And what happened then? Okay, now I'm ready to cut cancer out of Harlem. I'm ready to do it. I'm skilled. I, I know how to cut cancer out. I want to cut it out of Harlem. I can't do that. I can't cut it out. It won't yield. It won't yield to a surgeon's knife. It won't, it won't yield to what we call the Bard Parker, which was the name of the surgeon's knife. Cancer wouldn't yield. And, and, and so now I'm frustrated. I said, oh, I got all this skill. I can, I can cut this thing out. But then I get to the reality, I can't cut it out. Why? Because the people were coming in too late with cancer for me to be able to cut it out. I can't cut it out. Now, so that I'm, I'm faced with this. And, 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 and I'm very sincere because I, I don't know very much at this point uh, about life, except my own life. And, uh, and, and I'm trying to, to find my way. And I've had a certain kind of experience that, that brought me to this point. But now I have all this education, all these skills, and I can't apply them as I want to because the people are coming in too late. So now, now I, I'm, I'm frustrated. Say, damn, what, what, what am I going to do? I, I'm the head of the breast clinic at home. The people are coming in with tumors that you can see with your eyes, ulcerated, coming into my clinic for the first visit. And I say, well, you know, what, how could this happen? So, so this was a turning point in my life, in my thinking, because now I, I, I see that I'm, what I'm doing is not the right pathway. I mean, it's surely good to be able to be a surgeon and to operate, but, but if, you, if you can't operate because something in the community is overwhelming, this can, so you can't, you can't, something that happened, is, it was a socioeconomic invasion that was deeper than the cancer invasion in, in the community. So I'm dealing with something that I've never really faced very much before. I say, well, what are you going to do? My question. And, I, and I, so for the first, the first the kind of philosophical question uh, in my mind, I say, well, these people are all black and they're all poor. I'm asking them in 1970, are they dying because they're black? Or are they dying because they are poor? Or are they dying because of some combination of being black and poor? Hmm. And so that became the, the, the critical question because I, I want to I want to try to, to fix this thing if I can. Uh, and, and, and if I if I don't know what is driving it, I can't fix it. And I, I'm willing to accept whatever the answer is. If you're dying because you're black, uh, like genetically, then the pathway to fixing it is different from if you're dying because you're poor. It really is, it's fundamentally different. And, and I really wanted to try to, to do something about it. So, so that led me to try to answer that question first, from a point of no knowledge. So I'm not trained in sociology, I'm trained in surgery. I'm, I'm, I'm trained in tennis. I know, I, I know how to play tennis. 
man, I won the champion. I, won the, I was national champion at age 15 in tennis. It was another story. So, so now I'm, I'm 1970. I'm trying to say, well, what am I going to do? So I, I took time to call in maybe 20, 25 women who had come to my clinic too late. They were going to die, but they hadn't died yet. Uh, advanced disease and talk to me and say, well, what really, what really happened to you? Why did you come in so late with tumor? I could feed the tumor. And, and she said, well, the story was this. The person would say, well, doctor, this was not the first time I tried to come in. I came in to the Harlem Hospital emergency room two years ago, and I had a lump in my breast. And I waited for six hours. I finally got to see a doctor. He was polite to me, but he told me, you're in the wrong place. You have a lump in your breast and that's not an emergency and you're in the emergency room. And, and, and so you need to go to the medic, first of all, you don't have insurance. You need to go to the, the Medicaid office, which is a hundred bucks south of the hospital at that time, get your Medicaid card, come back and, and then make an appointment to the, to the proper clinic, not the emergency room. The woman would be typically a woman with no man in the house, typically. She'd have children. She'd be worried about food, clothing, and shelter, and the avoidance of crime in Harlem, which was high at that time. And, and she'd been told to, to go downtown 100 blocks and come back with your Medicaid card. And so, 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 so in summary, to that woman, um, the process of being recommended for her to, to solve her problems was more painful than the painless lump which she came in for. That's what she had, a painless lump. And the process being recommended was a more, much more painful than the lump was, was not bothering her except that it was there. And, and that was the story. And so if, if that's the story, then the question is, well, what do you do about it? Well, my, 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 my action took more than one pathway. Um, at, at Harlem Hospital itself, I, I set up a free clinic on Saturdays. Uh, by, by this time, I'm director of surgery uh, by 1974. I set up a free clinic so the person who was coming in could just go right to my clinic without registering into the hospital. I, I set that up in 1979 and, and it began to work until, until the hospital administrator told me you can't do that. You can't do that because, because it's, it's illegal. You can't just set up a clinic at nine o'clock on Saturday morning and tell people to come in. And you know, that was correct. You can't do that. They worry about malpractice and all that. And, and, and look, that was right. I called the Health and Hospitals Corporation downtown and said, look, I'm trying to help these people. And, and they, sent, they sent a vice president up to talk to me. and said, they say, they say, they say, well, you're trying to do the right thing, Dr. Freeman, and, and we're going to help you. And so that vice president of Rockland, 
who came to visit with me said, look, we, we like what you're doing, but we got to help you to do it so it's right. So she created a hospital number specifically only for my clinic, Saturday morning clinic, free clinic. And so when the person comes in to your clinic, put this number on the chart and the hospital will know that the patient is in the hospital. So now I converted a free clinic to one that was within the hospital system and went on from there. That's that after that. So that was a big, a big step forward. Then I found I got to, I could do a lot to get the patient that far, but still there were problems with getting the patient all the way through treatment. Now, something else happened to me uh, at, at simultaneously. Uh, you know, you, in life, you're doing more than one thing at one time, all the time, whether you know it or not. Things are happening in different streams and you've got to bring the streams together and make a river out of those streams for your life. And that's what I try to do. So in the meantime, you know, sometimes if you work hard and maybe if you don't work hard, you get promoted, you know, <laughs> you get promoted. So, so I, had, I had studied breast cancer in Harlem by that time and, and published a paper on it, how the death rate from breast cancer in Harlem. Well, the governor's wife, Governor Hugh Carey, wife died of breast cancer in 1974. The governor set up a high-level committee to advise him about what he should do for breast cancer in New York State. I was called to testify before the committee because people knew that I had the experience in Harlem. And, and, I, and I did testify that. And, and it resulted in the, the governor deciding to put the money into Harlem. And from that experience, we developed the breast examination of Harlem, which was put under Memorial Sloan Kettering, a big advance. So, so those are all, all things that happened. In the meantime, uh, I got, because of that work, I got put on the board of directors of the American Cancer Society, National, as a director at large, because there was no way that a doctor from Harlem could get on the national board directly. Somebody recognized what I'm doing, got him out the hollow, wonderful man, a surgeon. And he and he and he he said, you know, you 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 might have some point here. So I want you to be on the national board. Ten years later, I became the national president of the American Cancer Society. Ten years later. But in, in that experience, now I'll tell you about so now. That's happening simultaneously with my local experience in Harlem. Now, I'm learning about the local conditions in Harlem, cancer, breast cancer in particular, and what needs to be done. And as, as at the Cancer Society, I became the, the LaSalle Fall was the president of the American Cancer Society in 1978. I, I, I came onto the board around that time. And, and um, LaSalle Fall had started a committee called Cancer in Minorities after holding a meeting in Washington on cancer in Black America. So LaSalle did a, did a big step forward for the cancer side. I became the chairman of that committee after LaSalle was chairman and he was going on to a higher level. 
And I raised the question in that meeting of the American Center as chairman of the committee on, on, on cancer and minorities. Are these people dying because they're black or because they're poor? The same question that had come to me earlier, are they? But in this case, now I'm on a committee reporting to a board. And so I, 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 raised, the, I raised the question to the board of the American Cancer Society. The question I had, it started early in Harlem. Are black people dying because they're poor or because they're black? So the board unanimously said, we have to study that. And you have to be the chairman of the committee to study yourself. So in 1984, that committee was, was selected scholars from around the country, epidemiologists and other kinds of people. And we did a two year study in, starting in 1984. The study was published in 1986 called Cancer in the Socioeconomically Disadvantaged. And, and, and the report concluded for the first time that I knew uh, in the country that the principal reason that black people were dying from cancer was because they were poor. That was the question that I had wondered about. Now we have a two-year scholarly study, and I and I had led the study, and so we were the Cancer Society reported with me as chairman. Black people, the principal cause of death from cancer in Black Americans is poverty. Poverty. Now I have a real direction to go because that's a, that's the answer to my question. Three years later, I became the president myself. 1988, 10 years after LaSalle, the first president, I'm the second black president, can't say. So the principal activity I carried out during my year as president was the whole hearings in America on cancer in the poor, hearings. So there were national hearings on cancer in the poor, which I led in seven American cities hearing the testimony of poor people of all races who had cancer. We're trying to get to this, what's the bottom line? You know, poverty, universal, um, what's, the, what's, the, what's the bottom line? That committee concluded, and I wrote the paper from that, that the, that the principal reason that uh, the experience of poor people with cancer is principal reason, they meet barriers. Poor people meet barriers when they attempt to get into and through this very complex American healthcare system. They meet barriers. And from that idea, uh, uh, I, I thought of a concept. If, if people meet barriers in, in, in getting through the, the, the healthcare system with cancer and other chronic diseases, then maybe we should navigate them. Maybe we should navigate them. So, 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 so then, so the, the, the concept of patient navigation came out of that experience. Now, let's talk about what does navigate mean? So birds navigate, 
They go from north, thousand miles south. Butterflies navigate, cars navigate, airplanes navigate. So, so people trying to get from one point to an end point. So that's the concept. So you need to get from the point in the community to some point of resolution. So, so, so why not apply navigation to medicine, to, to, to people? If, if birds can navigate, people can navigate, if you can help them. If cars can navigate, people can navigate. If airplanes can navigate, people can navigate. So, so, you say, so let's navigate people across the healthcare continuum. Now, that, that's, a, that's a very important concept. So now, instead of a surgeon like I am operating on a patient, one patient uh, who comes in with advanced disease, I'm now considering what's the journey, the total journey that that patient had to take to get to me and beyond. And so now I have to stop. I have to, I have to continue being a good surgeon. But I have to try to understand and, and understand the journey that took place before the patient got to me. Now, these were poor people. Uh, they were, in my case, they were black people. Uh, and, and they, so I had to, so now, so what, what is the journey? The journey has to do with reaching them in the community, educating them in the community, finding a way to navigate them from the community to get a test in the hospital or elsewhere, like, like a mammogram or colonoscopy. And, and, and don't stop there. They get the test. You make sure they get the test, even if they can't pay for it. Get them the test. That's part of the journey. They have to, to eliminate any barrier they would have as a community person getting the test, eliminate the barrier and navigate. If they have a, an abnormal finding from the test, they need to have a biopsy to prove what it is. That's a journey that hadn't been paid much attention to. You have a lump in the breast, but it needs, it's got to be a biopsy rapidly. So you, the journey goes from, from biopsy to, to pathological finding. Now you have cancer of the breast and then you're going that far. And now you have to navigate them into treatment, surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, and, and through that in a timely way. And, 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 and so we came up with this, 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 this journey, shifting from what I do as a surgeon on one patient, which I still continue to do, to the journey of the patient across the continuum that they had to go from the point of the community they live in to testing, to treatment, to resolution, to support after care. And that became patient navigation, patient navigation. And so that, that, that concept um, caught on in America. I, I got to testify before the Congress on patient navigation. Uh, I had studied it. Uh, I got a lot of help from people, some, some senator from New Jersey, Menendez helped me, you know, people like that. They got, they got caught up with the idea, Menendez himself. He said, this is a good idea. 
So <clears throat> what happened was the Patient Navigation Act was passed by the Congress in 1995 based on the Harlem experience and the information that came out of it came to law signed by George Bush the, the son, you know, and, and, and by this time, I was the chairman of the President's Cancer Panel. That helped a lot too. I've been in that position for 12 years. So I had communication contact with three different presidents during that time as chairman of the President's Cancer I'm getting promoted. So this is another stream of, of life that into the river of my life and, and river of my, my experience that I refer to. So now, now you got something coming out of Harlem where um, you, you've asked some questions and you've begun to try to answer them and, and you get to an answer and then you get promoted. So you have a platform to say what you believe to the whole country. But now you're president of the Cancer Society and they get behind you and they help to, to drive this thing. You get a lot of credit, give to the Cancer Society for, for, for allowing this to happen. And, and allowing me to, to take this thing along that way. And so now from Harlem, we get a change in the laws of America where millions of dollars are put into patient navigation. Um, so I'll tell you just uh, last week, uh, I've agreed to, um, I'm taking the law point, but I want to add this point. So, the American Cancer Society contacted me just 10 days ago because they've set up patient navigation pilot programs in 10 international cities, five of which are in Africa, to create patient navigation in the third world. That's another, that's an aside. So the thing has come, it's bubbled up from a, a person who had a background. A key point here is that to take this course that I took, I had to come from a certain background. People who didn't have that background wouldn't think of this, wouldn't be challenged like this, wouldn't care perhaps like I did about it. But, but, but the truth of the matter is that I came from nowhere. Mm -hmm. I came Nowhere. I came from just the point that I had a, a family, <clears throat> a mother and a father that cared, who cared about other people. I had, had that. I, I had a background where I became a first class tennis player and, 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 I was, and, and my mother would say, keep your eyes on the ball. Keep your eyes on the ball. If you, and do it over and over again until you get it right. <clears throat> Backhand cross court, forehand down the line, serve to the corner, do that right. You become the national champion. So, so now, you know, putting all these things together, you know, I don't take personal credit for that. I think I was in an environment that drove me to do certain things. I, I, I'm not bragging about this. This is what happened. But it does give you the sense that things can, can help. 
can work if you think about it and have the right concerns, the right intentions. Uh, so we drive. So at this point, I think patient navigation has become one of the most critical activities to help disadvantage cancer patients. The, 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 uh, the uh, American College of Surgeons uh, several years ago determined that to have approval as a cancer center in America, you must have a patient navigation program. The Obamacare has within it patient navigation. Obamacare came out in 2012 and, and, and had requirements of patient navigation. So, so I, I don't want to go too, 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 too deeply, but I think that if you want to talk about me and, and my relationship to the questions that you raise, um, it has to do with the point <clears throat> that I had the opportunity to become a high level trained surgeon, that I came from a particular background that caused me to be concerned about injustice, particularly racial injustice. And, and I applied it to my work. And I, and, and I, and I really um, was the principal driver of the, of the point number one, that, that race, that racial issues in, in cancer are driven mainly by poverty. That's a different question to how did you get poor is a different question. And why are you poor? And, and, and surely the 400 years since 1619 had something to do with that. That's it, but that's a different question, you know? But if you say, well, what's causing you to die? It's because you are poor. And that's a different question. Why are you poor? You do need to act on things related to prejudice and, and social injustice, but you have to act on what does poverty cause? It causes you to have less knowledge. It causes you to have less access to care. It, it causes you to, to be fearful of the environment and, 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 and all those things. <clears throat> so I would put it this way. If you ask me what are the causes of health disparities, you asked the question, I've written about this. There are three things that I think predominate. <clears throat> Number one, poverty itself. Poverty, put a circle of poverty. Now draw another circle overlapping the poverty circle. I call it social injustice. Social poverty, social injustice. And a, and a third circle, a third circle the circle of culture, how you behave. <clears throat> so the combination of the three overlapping circles, poverty, social injustice, and culture drive disparities across the continuum uh, from, from when you live to when you die. And, and, and that's my theory. And, and if, if that's true, that it should guide you about what to do about it. And so um, the challenge is 
that we know what to do about, I think, what I've said right now, to, to address poverty, to address social injustice, uh, to understand culture. Sometimes culture is positive, sometimes it's negative. But, but poverty acts through the prism of culture and causing its negative effects. So to, to do something about it, you have to understand not only poverty, but, but culture itself, poverty acting through culture to cause negative effects. The Seventh-day Adventists may be poor, but their culture tells them don't smoke cigarettes and eat vegetables. Seventh-day Adventists, culture can trump poverty in some respects. If you eat, if you if you have seven day Adventist, you probably won't develop lung cancer, the number one cancer cause in America, because why you don't smoke the culture. So, so that's a very important element. If you're in, in in Harlem where I work, particularly in the early decades, heavy smoking soul food. Tastes good, not so good for you. Too much fat, you know. No, so 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 culture become very important. So to, to, to answer this, then you have to to deal with poverty and culture, and then if poverty causes people to have low access to care, which it does, that's true. But poverty also causes a uh, poor housing and less social support and less knowledge, less education and risk-promoting lifestyle. So you can't deal with healthcare just within the healthcare system itself. It's outside, it's, 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 it's universal effect from, from housing to social support, to education, uh, to lifestyle and behavior. So this is the very, very big picture. Now, what's counter to this is <clears throat> that in the medical system has become more and more commercial over time, over decades. Uh, I started as a doctor interested in helping people, you know, helping the human, changing the human condition. As time went on, medicine became overtaken by business, which the, 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 the intent of business is to make a profit. I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm saying that in a, in a, in a, in a thing that is dealing with the human condition, uh, you have to be allowed for concern about the human condition to trump everything else. And so now when you shift to the point where healthcare system is on the stock market, which it is right now, it wasn't when I started, it is now, then we're dealing, so how then can you put in these concerns <clears throat> and the actions related to what I said to a healthcare system that thrives on profit? There's some good parts about that. Good regulations could occur, <clears throat> but if the if the, if the healthcare system is on the stock market, 
Then the question is, who are you trying to satisfy? Maybe it's your stockholders. Maybe. You know, maybe it's your stockholders. In fact, it is. In fact, it is. <clears throat> that doesn't mean <clears throat> that some good things couldn't come out of that. <clears throat> but we need to shift it back to a human concern. To concern that an individual patient, irrespective of their ability to pay and their educational level, can, in a in a rapid way, get into and through the healthcare system, particularly when they have a lethal disease. And the other side of it is, if you don't pay for it in the beginning, you will pay for it in the end. There's no doubt about it. <clears throat> when, people die, when people die from cancer, it, it costs them and society. It, so, so why not take a change and, and, and shift over to a system where you're directing your thoughts toward the movement of everybody in a timely way to an endpoint within the healthcare system. Let me, let me give you, uh, let me give you one final point. <clears throat> so there's something called the mile relay. <clears throat> the mile relay. I know you're, you're interested in sports like I am. <clears throat> In the mile relay, you have to go a whole mile to, to, to win the race, to cross that finish line. <clears throat> In the mile relay, there are four runners. There are four runners. I want you to think of those runners as navigators. In the mile relay, the, 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 the runner is carrying a baton. I want you to think of the baton as the patient. <clears throat> and about really you choose runners who can run. So the people who you choose as navigators have to have certain capacities and skills and knowledge, intelligence. <clears throat> so the first runner holding a baton, patient runs as fast as he or she can and passes the baton is from the community to <clears throat> The person who's giving the test, mammogram, pass the baton. Now you can't drop the baton because you lose the race. You can't drop it. Now, the person, the navigator who does the test takes the baton to the person who's going to give the circuit mm. and drop it between those two runners. And then that one takes it to the, the, the chemotherapy and finally the fourth runner crosses the line, but the race isn't over until it's over. Yogi Berra said that, not over until it's over. So the idea of the healthcare has to be like Yogi Berra. It's not over until it's over. And you gotta get fast. And it's not over until they carry that patient across the finish line. And that's the idea of patient navigation. And one more element. The navigators are carrying out their individual roles, the first runner, the second runner, the third runner. To have a really functional navigation system, you have to have a coach. You'll never win an Olympic race 
if you don't have a good coach. And, uh, and so, so the coach is looking at the whole race. So someone overseeing the whole race from beginning to end while runners are carrying it out, trying to pace you through it. So that's the concept of patient navigation, which I think is one of the real advances in helping people who have disparities in cancer. Absolutely. And then, you know, that remains your legacy. I know we're running up on time and I know, but, but Dr. Stewart, I was going to turn this over to you if you had one quick question. Yes, yes. So Dr. Freeman, it, it warmed my heart to hear that you won the psychiatry award. I won the psychiatry award upon graduation from Howard Medical School. And Is that right? Yes. And I also won the Jack White award. <laughs> yes. And rounded yeah. with Mickey Syfax. So yes, that, that, that story was amazing. Yeah. So, you know, we know that life is all about relationships and, uh, and you know, it's chronicles about your relationships with uh, LaSalle de la Fall. You know, Dr. Rob Wynn is in Richmond, so we've got to give a shout out to your relationship with Arthur Ashe. Can you talk to me about how your relationships with those two individuals have shaped you? Arthur Ashe and LaSalle de la Fall, yes. LaSalle, okay. <clears throat> well, LaSalle was just a little ahead of me in training after a few years. Uh, LaSalle, one of the most brilliant people that I've ever met. So when I, when I went into surgery at that time, I did not know LaSalle in the very beginning. I was related to Burke Syfax, Burke Syfax, who, who was the head of surgery at that time. And Burke Syfax, was a great teacher to me because he dealt directly with the patient. He would, he would put his hand on the abdomen to examine the patient. He wouldn't just talk from the side. He, 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 so he taught me that. Now, when the sound came along, um, I, 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 I got a, I felt like he was, he personified as a young man, what 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 Tyfax was teaching more than anyone else, and and so those two people had a very deep effect. In fact, I went into surgery because of of, of Cyfax. and after seeing LaSalle, I, he showed me the way that a young person like me might have a, a guide on how to go forward. So those were two two heroes for me in directing my life along the line of surgery. And LaSalle and I have stayed, stayed in, in touch until he died. We, we, he, 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 I, I think he was, he, he was one of the most brilliant people that I have ever met, who stayed on point all the time. There's something about life that's important that you have to stay on course. And he stayed, he never went off course. He kept getting better and better. He went, he got to be president of the American College of Surgeons. Uh, he was well loved by everyone. So he set a wonderful example for, for not only for me, but for many, many, many people after. So, so those, those are my heroes. Great. Thank you so much.
Got a quick question though. We gonna follow up and let you go. Now you know I'm down here in Richmond and Massey, so you know Walter Lawrence was the other guy who played tennis. Did you like? Yeah. Did you guys ever get a chance to play? I, I never, I never played him, but I, I knew about him. Yeah, <laughs> I knew about him. I, I, I knew Arthur Ashe. You know, I actually played Arthur. No. Yes. Yes. Really? That is that is well chronicled. Arthur, <laughs> Arthur was 16 years old, and. Uh, I was 10 years old and I played him in a tournament. He, he, he whipped me pretty bad, you know, but I, I felt so bad about it. The guy, a 16 year old, it wasn't that bad. It was a contested match, but <clears throat> I felt bad that a 16 year old would beat me. But then soon after that, he, he, he beat Chris Crawford at, at Forest Hills after that. So I, said, I didn't feel so bad. It became, it, became, it became the world champion. So, but but he was, he was a really a fine young man. And I saw him develop with Werwin Johnson in Lynchburg. I, I, saw, I, I met Arthur when he was eight years old and I saw him develop to be the world champion. I, I, I was selected when I was 15 before Arthur to, to, to play Tennis by Whirlwind Johnson. They wanted. They were pushing me as the black champion to get into, you know, USDA. Um, but my mother made me withdraw because Johnson wanted me to live with him, and she wanted me to go to school. So, so that's what happened. That's so cool. You know what? Thank you for sharing with us. For for me, you are one of the shining lights. You know, I mean, you. You, it's interesting how humble you are for what you did because your thing of navigation has actually it lighted a new fire in many of us. Again, I'm cancer center director, but it's based on community first, second, third, and fourth. And I actually give credit to you and people like Dr. LaFall and Dr. Walter Lawrence. So I just want to say thank you for spending some moments with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Good to see you, Dr. Freeman. Thank you for listening to the Cancer History Project podcast. Our archives are available online for free at cancerhistoryproject.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, at cancerhistproj. If your institution or organization would like to contribute to our growing collection of historical documents, or if you'd like to suggest an interview or topic, please email us at admin at cancerhistoryproject.com.